Vibrant Church is all about passionate people who build authentic relationships to reach limitless potential and serves Orange County, California. For more information, visit us online at theocmovement.com. We hope you enjoy this message from the Hub. We are jumping into a brand new series called Watchmen. And uh, we're stoked about this because this isn't just about a series that's going to be a spectator series. This is going to be a participatory series. And you get to play a part in it. We're super stoked. We're going to randomly pick different ones of you to come here and just preach on a whim. I'm excited. It's going to be so good. But no, I'm kidding. This is all in preparation leading up. And I say this, I want to hear like just a round of applause like you've never done one before. All leading up to our third anniversary. Come on, somebody. Yeah. We are stoked about that, man. It's been an awesome three years, but the best is yet to come. Amen. And so we're stoked. But with this series is all about the part that you and I play in the world that we live in. All about the role that you and I play. But before I jump in, how many of you in here, by show of hands, please do not be ashamed. How many of you in here have an older brother? Would you raise your hand right now? How many of you were the older brother? Raise your hand. Okay, I believe that biblically everyone needs an older brother. And I believe that part of my calling, in addition to awakening destiny in the lives of people, is to be older brothers for people who've never had an older brother. Because you just need to be antagonized and beat up every once in a while. You need to be made fun of in front of your friends. You just need to experience that. Because it builds character like digging holes builds character. Nobody? Nobody's ever seen the movie Holes. You need to change that today. It, that's also biblical. Well, I had an older brother who was 10 years older than me and also six foot 18 and had about 200 pounds on me my entire life. I think I'm catching up to him now, but uh, he was a great older brother, but he did things that older brothers should do, right? Many of you know, if you're you're visiting with us today, I'm one of seven kids. My mom and dad love to make babies and have babies. And so one of seven kids and 22-year gap between the seven of us. I know it's crazy. But my older brother would do things like just, you know, antagonize. Every once in a while, he'd just kind of throw me on the ground, pin my hands up behind my head. And have you all ever done this? Do the little spit thing where you spit and then suck it back up and spit and suck it. Y'all, if you've never never experienced that, you have not lived. Let me just tell you right now. And so you're sitting there going, no! And he's right over your face. And every once in a while, ah, that spit would drop. Yeah, yeah. So I felt it was my duty to pass that tradition down to my younger brothers and sisters as well, right? That's biblical. And so uh, another thing that my brother would do, this was like my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare. Every once in a while, he, we would be wrestling or whatever and always at a disadvantage for me, right? He's just so much older, so much bigger than me. And he would grab a blanket and throw it over my entire body, then lay on top of it and then do this. <sighs> Breathing warm air, (sighs) like Darth Vader, demonic style, right? And of course, I'm calm, cool, and collective on the inside. Absolutely not. Like, "Ah!" freaking out, kicking and screaming. But I'm seven. He's 17. This is going nowhere fast. And in my seven years, y'all are thinking my my brother needs to be in prison. He is. So pray for him. But uh, he's actually one of my closest friends. I talk to him all the time. I did survive. But... In that moment as a seven-year-old, underneath this blanket, I was convinced that I was breathing in my last few breaths of air on this earth, right? In my seven-year-old mind, I am convinced these are my last days. Mom, I love you. Be good 
it to my brothers and sisters, not the one on top of me. You know what I mean? I am panicking, kicking and screaming. And the reason I'm panicking is because I am completely encapsulated, completely in bondage and convinced there is no hope for rescue or salvation for my life. So, of course, I did the same thing to my younger brothers and sisters because they need to experience that. But I think the important part of this story is that there are so many people living life like that. Surrounded by the chaos, the crisis, the heartbreak, and the challenges that we face. And in our mind, we are convinced that this bondage that we're experiencing will always be the way that it's going to be. Because it feels like it's always been that way. Now, for me, as a seven-year-old, my brother was probably about four, maybe five seconds max. And he'd throw the blanket off, and he's laughing hysterically, and I (gasps) take my gasp of breath. But for so many people, they never get to that part of their life where the blanket comes off, and (gasps) they breathe in the fresh air of hope. And I believe that's part of the reason that we as a church exist. When I say we as a church, I don't mean the incorporated title of the movement church, OC. I'm talking about you and me. All through scriptures, we see portions and stories where God's people, the children of Israel, would get into captivity because of mistakes or choices that they would make. And they would be in bondage as slaves But always in that moment, God would send a messenger to remind people that there is always hope. And this series called The Watchmen, we're going to dive through the scripture. We're going to read through the story of a character named Nehemiah. But we're going to discover that God has actually created each of us to bring the message of hope. And really the way the scripture titles it, he's called us to be watchmen. And we see this in a passage of scripture from one who was chosen to be a prophet. His name was Ezekiel. And he wrote passages of scripture to the children of Israel who were in captivity. Trying to bring a message of hope. And we find a passage of scripture that's kind of heavy and intense. And we're going to start off with this. This is the theme verse for the entirety of this series. And it's very sobering. But look at me in the eyes for a moment. I believe that as a Christ follower, if you're here today and somebody drags you to church and you don't know where you stand in your faith, you get a hall pass. You just get to listen. You don't have to worry about it. But if you're here today and you say, I am a Christ follower, I believe this scripture is for you and for me. And it's very sobering. But the challenge is, I think so many times we tune our ear off to the sobering scriptures because it's so challenging to be obedient to what God wants to say. But listen to this passage from the prophet Ezekiel as he says, hey, there's hope for the future, but it may not look exactly like what you're thinking it's going to look like. Ezekiel chapter 3, I'm going to read from the message translation, which is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the scripture. And I like to read it because sometimes it just clicks a little better with us because there's a lot of the, there's not the, the these and the thous and the hitherto's, which I don't even know what that means. But listen to Ezekiel chapter three, verses 17 through 19. It says this, son of man, he's talking to you and me. I have made you a watchman. If you have your Bible with you, underline that word. I have made you a watchman for the family of Israel. 
for the family of Israel. He's saying, hey, people, I've made you a watchman for those who are in captivity. Whenever you hear me say something, warn them for me. So, hey, son of man, Christ follower, I've made you a watchman for those who are in captivity. And when you hear a word from me, this is God, when you hear a word from me, then warn them for me. What's interesting about this word warn, when you look up the word warn in the actual original translation of the Hebrew language, it actually means to bring a warning or an admonishment, but it also translates to being light in darkness. So Ezekiel is not just saying, speak what it is that I'm telling you to do, but he's saying, let there be an example of the way that you live, of the way that you act, and let that be a beacon of hope for those who are in captivity. For you are a watchman. The words that you speak are meant to bring hope for those who are in bondage. The life that you live is meant to bring hope to those who don't see hope or a future or anything that God is trying to do in their life. Ezekiel is saying, hey, you are a watchman. You were created to bring light into darkness, to bring hope into hopelessness. It's kind of like that song that if you grew up in the church, and I like to sing... I can't sing. Jeremy won't let me be on the worship team. Pastor Jeremy, I'm, I'm bitter a little bit. You're welcome. He's a great leader. There's an old church song that goes like this. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, nobody? Yes! This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Sorry, visitors. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Should I do it in falsetto? This little light of mine. Okay, that's enough. Right? That song is echoing the words of Ezekiel. And I believe that many of us are allowing our light to be hidden under the bushel of inaction and apathy. Under the bushel of silence. We know the hope of who Jesus is because he's rescued so many of us in this room from the darkness of our past. And yet we live in a dark world and we allow inaction and silence To hide the light that's on the inside. And I believe that Ezekiel is saying, you and me, we are watchmen. Listen to how he continues on with this scripture. He says, hey, in in verse 17, warn them for me. In verse 18, he says, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. In order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood, I will require at your hand. Hey, listen to me, people, for a moment. We are headed at life speed towards eternity. And there is no question, it doesn't matter what our faith dictates, we will spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. 
And the deciding factor is whether or not I've surrendered and given my life to Jesus. That's called the truth. And when we hide the light of our life under the bushel of inadequacy or silence or inaction, we're actually not bringing the truth to people who need to know it most. And what Ezekiel is saying, there will come a day where if you choose to be silent, if you choose to do nothing, he's not saying get up on a table and preach, turn or burn. Get up on a table and say, you're all going to hell. Macho man Randy Savage. Step into a Slim Jim. You're welcome. He's not saying that, right? Remember, to, to warn them means that my life is bringing light. That my words are bringing light and hope. He's saying, hey, if we do nothing, there will come a day where eternity will meet them. He doesn't say we have to convince them of the way. We don't have to make them pray. But we've got to be a watchman. And to bring light into a dark world. It's the responsibility that you and I have. Hey, Christ's follower, you don't get exempted from this scripture. This isn't like, okay, this applies to most of you, depending on how long you've been following Christ. No, this applies to all of us. This applies to all of us. So boil down, what does it mean to be a watchman? Number one, to hear God's word. And number two, to share God's word. And I think some of us might hide behind the fact that I don't feel like a theologian or I know how to answer all the questions and that's okay, you don't have to. But just to hear the hope of God's word, right? What is God speaking to us on a consistent basis? That our life should be a reflection of love. You don't need deep theology to be able to be an example of love. Joy, what is joy? It's experiencing the happiness and the fullness of God in the midst of any situation. Peace, to make it through life. And when crisis comes, I am not deterred or stirred because God is in control. This isn't about having a theological debate. This isn't about arguing with people. It's just allowing the light of Christ to shine through me because I'm responsible Because I am a watchman. And as a watchman boiled down, it means that I need to hear God's word and share God's word. This is always the method of God. He always chooses to work through people. And what I'm so grateful is that he doesn't choose to work through perfect people. Thank God, because none of you would qualify. Some of you less than others. Let's just be honest. Right? He chooses to work through jacked up, messy people. Can I get an amen for that? That's the method of God. That's the nature of God. There's so many people who are out of tune or on a different frequency than what God's trying to say. What God does is he always uses those who are in touch with him to reach those who are out of touch with him. Notice it's not he uses people who are perfect. And have all their ducks in a row. But just people who are willing to hear God speak. And then share God's word. We're watchmen. We're created to be watchmen. He just created us to share a warning. To share the truth. Not to convince them to be who they were supposed to be. And we see this this theory or this theme of the watchman through the life of a Bible character that I love. His name is Nehemiah. 
And over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack the book of Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah. And it's one of heroism, it's one of courage and bravery, and it's one of an ordinary person that God uses to do something extraordinary. And Nehemiah is found in captivity. In fact, in the same place that Ezekiel was, but Ezekiel was just there hundreds of years before. They were captured by the Babylonians, and then it changed and transferred over to the Persian kingdom. They were taken out of Jerusalem, the Israelites, God's people, out of the promised land, into captivity, made to be slaves and worse. And God did something in the midst of that season that was amazing. For over 150 years, they were in captivity. And what's sad is that the people of Israel there, when they moved to this new country, they kind of settled in and began to build homes for themselves and acclimate to the culture. And in this season of time, there's always God working through the remnant of people. And we see great names emerge through positions of government and leadership. Names like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, Queen Esther. All within this time of captivity, God's always using people who are willing to be in touch with him to reach those who are out of touch with him. After many years, the the kingdom there, the Persians said, okay, fine, we'll let you go back to your home if you'd like. You're still under our rule. We'll still in a government that's over you, but you can go back if you'd like to. And they become so acclimated to captivity that out of 2 million Jews, only 50,000 returned home. Some 2%. I wonder how many are in captivity today. Bondage, but don't even realize it. And feel like it may have become a new normal for them. 2% remained in Jerusalem. And the rest were in captivity. And then God begins to do something in Nehemiah. Let's catch up with the story of this. We're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to read through this over the course of the next four weeks. And I I encourage you to journey with us. In fact, this is a great thing to do in your time with the Lord. Your quiet time is to read through the book of Nehemiah. Listen to what Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1 says. It says, Now it happened in the month of Cheslev. I don't know how if I pronounce that correct or not. In the twelfth year, as I was in Shusha in the citadel... That Hanai, one of my brothers, that's a lot of confusing words. It just means that he was in a capital city in the palace and he was in a place of prestige. And his brother came to him with certain men from Judah. So back home in Jerusalem, they came to talk to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says this, And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had surveyed or survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So now here's something to, be, to know. Je- Nehemiah had never lived in Jerusalem, but he was a Jew. So Jerusalem was his hometown and the promised land from God. So that was the place that God had designed him to live and to grow and to be who God had created him to be. And he is born into slavery and captivity. Yet what I love about Nehemiah is he still yearns for and desires freedom. And listen, look at me in the eyes. People who live in darkness, whether they know it or not, desire freedom. Just like I did when I'm under that blanket thinking, this is it. I'm going to die a seven-year-old. Goodbye, sweet life. 
I desire freedom. I just want this guy off of me. Just take the blanket down. I wouldn't be able to breathe. I just didn't know how to find freedom for myself. Nehemiah born into captivity, desiring freedom. And he says, what's going on with the people in Jerusalem? How are things there? Are they doing okay? What's their life like? And in verse 3, it says this. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is important. They're saying, hey, their remnant are there, but it is in a bad place. It's great trouble and not just trouble, but shame. The walls of Jerusalem, the gates, everything is broken down and destroyed by fire. What does this mean? The walls were a representation of identity for Jerusalem. It was a representation of security. So now you have a people in exile, only 50,000 strong, but living in a place of constant stress and anxiety, constant shame and fear. A people born to be a great nation. As the scripture says, a royal priesthood. But living in shame and condemnation. And the challenge about the wall is that because it was broken down and there were holes in the wall all over and the gates were no longer there, they were constantly susceptible to raiders and marauders and thieves. So they would try to rebuild the temple only to have it destroyed and raided once more. So everything they would try to build that was beautiful in their own effort would not last. A broken people. Created to be something great. Can you imagine that? But living in unwhole and unfulfilled lives. Doesn't that sound like the people that we might interact with? People living in shame and condemnation of the decisions and the regrets and the mistakes of the past. Living in the bondage of a marriage that's relationally hemorrhaging and they don't know where hope is. That their marriage can make it. Teenagers in high school and college students just wandering through life. Susceptible to the waves and the winds of anything that culture suggests is acceptable and okay. Pursuing careers and ambition and not unique purpose and design. Apathetically and hopelessly wandering through life in bondage and captivity. They may not even know it. Because this is the way that it's always been. Nehemiah said, tell me. Tell me of the state of the walls of Jerusalem. Tell me the state and the morale of the people there. I've never been. Describe the citadels, the temple to me. I've always dreamed of a great place, a great walled city with gates. And and the gates of the city were more than just an entrance. This is a place where conversation and philosophy and theology and, and things were discussed. There were court systems at the gates. So the gates were a huge representation of the livelihood of this city. And they were destroyed. A people broken and susceptible to thieves at any time of the day. Doesn't the scripture refer to the enemy as a thief? 
who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Nehemiah's burden for his people. God wanted to use Nehemiah, but first, God needed to do something in Nehemiah. And you need to know that, that you and I, we're created to be watchmen. Any great work of God to reach people begins with a great work inside someone. You were created to be a watchman. You have the light of truth on the inside. I have the light. We are created to be watchmen. But anytime God wants to do something great, a great work in the lives of people, he always starts with a great work inside of someone. Nehemiah hears this. He hears of the state of what's going on. And, and he's, he's burdened by the, the status of this great nation that once was. And here's the challenge. Once Jerusalem went into captivity, it would have been so easy for them to be just like many other ancient cities who were overthrown to slip into oblivion, only to be left to the books of history. And I believe that if we're not careful in our nation, in our state, in our county, in our cities, that we might miss an opportunity to bring light to people. And they'll live a life and slip into oblivion. We're watchmen. I love how Nehemiah responds. I love how Nehemiah responds to what he hears and sees about in Jerusalem. But before I even get there, I often, I was thinking through this, I was reading through the scripture about this story. 150 years, some 70 years into captivity, they were told, you may go home, you can return. Go back to your place, build it up and live there. You'll still be under our rule, but you may go home. But only 50,000 returned. I wonder how many people over the course of 150 years did God speak to, yet they remained silent. Two million God-fearing Jews. I wonder how many people God spoke through, but they allowed inaction to prohibit them from being a watchman. Some of us might get a little gung-ho and go kind of crazy on this, but I love Nehemiah's response. It's not sexy, but it's the right response. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. I don't think you guys have it on the screen, so you have to follow along with me. It means you can't Instagram anymore. Thanks, Megan. Nehemiah 1, 4 through 6. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. Listen to this. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So immediately when Nehemiah hears this, his initial response was not to run to Jerusalem, not to rally the troops, but to recognize the state that that nation was in and to say, I don't have the strength or the tools that I need. First and foremost, I've got to run to God. And I love how he starts that passage. Oh, God of heaven, identifying that he is in charge of, in control of everything. Oh, God of heaven. I'm lifting my voice up to you. Can you hear my prayers? My people, your people are in a desperate place. 
And I know that we're here because we made mistakes and we stopped following you. But God, would you just turn your ear and your eyes to us? Because I believe that there's hope for this nation. I believe they were created to be something great. And they don't have to live in shame and condemnation and bondage forever. It's a paraphrase. But that's what I hear in the subtext. God, would you hear my prayers? I believe we're called to be watchmen. I believe we live, let's not talk in a nation, but we live in a county of 3.1 million people. We're only 2.7, I'm sorry, only 10% attend church, which means only 2.7, I keep saying the wrong words, 2.7 million people do not attend Which means to me that there's a whole lot of people in this county who may be living in bondage like I was as a child under that blanket. But I don't know that there's hope. And guess what? There are people gathering all around this county every week professing the hope of who Jesus is. And yet there's still millions of people who just don't know. We need to be praying. Lifting up our voices to the God of heaven and saying, God, there's too many people who don't know that they can make it in their marriage. That that addiction does not have to trump everything in their life, but they can find victory. That the financial crisis that they're walking through, it doesn't mean their life is over. That there's purpose for you as a teenager, 16, 17 years old. And you don't have to do everything that everyone else does. 2.7 million people. 2.7 million people. That's too big for you. It's too big for me. But it's not too big for the God of heaven. And listen to me, prayer freaking works. Prayer works. I love that Nehemiah didn't complain and whine. I don't know, God. Well, just always been this way. Why didn't, I mean, you know, there's some great churches here and everything's good. I love that he didn't immediately start looking for someone else to get the job done. He didn't even put a plan into place. He just began to pray. And do you know that he prayed for about four months? Spoiler alert. The end of the story, he goes back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the wall in 52 days. We'll talk about that in week four. 52 days, they rebuild the wall. But he prayed for four months. Four months of prayer to lay a foundation for what only took 52 days. I wonder how many things in your life you've given up praying praying for. I wonder how many things are in your life that you once had a dream for, you once believed God for. And now you've just given into the bondage and captivity and frustration of your situation. And you just said, man, I can't do this anymore. Do you know, right now in this room, there's a, a guy who was working. His name is Sean Langford. Injured his knee. Was out of work. Got let go from his job, but kept praying faithfully. And started training this week at his, his old job. How freaking cool is that? That was a weak hand clap. But that's because you weren't in his financial crisis. Right? Sorry, I'm getting a little angry. You weren't in his financial crisis, but when it's your crisis, you'll pray. Right? Do you know right here in this building today is a young man named Nate 
went to the doctors, and they said, hey, your hearing in this ear is dead. There's no hope for healing. You're done. You've got a little bit here, so we'll get you a hearing aid. Hopefully, it's going to work. It's dead. There's nothing we can do. Two weeks ago, team night, Megan got up and said, some of you are praying for miracles. Let's pray right now. A couple days later, a guy in our church at our connect group prayed for him. And all of a sudden, he was like, I think I'm hearing things. Not the voices in my head, other things. (laughs) Told his wife to put on a song, put the earbud in his ear, and he could hear the music. In an ear that was dead, but God raised that to life. Come on, can we clap for that? Prayer works. And it doesn't have to be weird and kooky. That's just God doing what he wants to do. And if he can raise a dead ear to life and give a guy a job back who the boss has said, no, I'm sorry, you're done. Can he not speak life and truth to people in this county who need hope? What is it going to take to be a watchman then? Just to sit your butt in a seat on a Sunday morning? No. Because you can do that your whole life and never share the light that's on the inside. But I believe it's our prerogative and our mandate to begin praying that God does something miraculous in our county, in the cities that we live in. Because too many people are heading at life speed towards eternity. And I don't want to be there that day to watch them walk in the opposite direction that I'm going. I want to stand before God one day in heaven and look to the left and the right and see an army of people are there because of something that we were a part of. But the first step has been, always will be, and should be prayer. I believe that we have a mandate from God to begin to pray for our our county, for our cities, our schools, our school faculties, and our government officials. I don't care what your political persuasion is. But to pray that God would just begin to do something powerful in this region again, in this state, in this nation. It's time for an awakening. And the crazy thing is he wants to do it. And he's already put a plan in place. The solution's already there. He gave Jesus to provide hope. But he's got a solution in place. And guess what? It's you. Yes, it's you. You don't understand, Pastor. I just got to church and I don't even know. You said, Nehemiah, I've never heard that name before. Who cares? Just be light. It's you, your co-workers. I only have one and I don't like them. That doesn't matter. Don't invite them to our church, invite them to another one. Your neighbors. Well, they mow into my line on the grass and their dog poops on my front lawn. They need Jesus. Pick up the poop for them. Maybe some of your family. Right? And you know who they are. Because right now, in this moment, I believe the Holy Spirit is pointing out people in your life. You're seeing faces of the people that you know. That you meet at the mailbox. Hey, what's going on? It's hot out here. Yeah, it is. We need water. Yeah, all right, see you later. Hiding it under the bushel of inaction and silence. Doesn't mean you open the mailbox, turn or burn, you devil-worshipping, Satan-loving. No, come on. Let's be realistic here, 
right? Hey, what's, what are you doing? In a couple weeks, we're celebrating our church's anniversary. Come hang out. That's an awesome start. Or maybe, hey, what's going on in your world? Is there anything I could be praying for? Well, it just seems kind of weird. Try it. Nine out of ten times, people will say, yeah, actually. Because I'm, I'm at an impasse. Have you ever been at a place where you don't see hope? I have. I have. Too many times. And I've been a Christ follower since I was six. Great family. Raised in the church. How much more for people who have never heard the hope of who Jesus is. I had somebody ask me two days ago, well, what about the people who've never heard about Jesus. Well, maybe we should start to change that. And you may not be able to reach 2.7 million, but you could reach 2.7 people, dogs included. No, I'm kidding. Just start. And the best way to start is with prayer. Just to say, God, you can do it. I don't know how to, but you can God, I'm praying for this specific person, his wife, or to sit in class next to me at Saddleback College, Dana Hills High School, whatever it is. Would you give me the right words to speak and to know when to talk and know when to hold them and know when to fold them? <laughs> you, feel, you feel what I'm saying? Do you smell what I'm cooking? Do you, hear what, do you hear what God's trying to do in this place? Maybe some of you in this room feel like you want to resist that. I want to just challenge you to be open to it. This series is about so much more than just understanding the book of Nehemiah. It's about so much more than just understanding that we're called to be watchmen. It's about the role that we play in the world that we live in today. We're going to challenge you over the next four weeks to do four things. Pray, survey, build, and invite. Pray, survey, build, and invite. Starting next Sunday, we're going to spend 21 days in prayer. Praying for and believing for revival to hit Orange County. Praying and, for, and believing that when we launch into two services on our third anniversary, this place would be so packed that we can't even contain it. Why? Because we want to grow a big church? Yes, because it means we're reaching more people. The more people who have a chance to say yes to Jesus means we are winning, people. And it's going to start with prayer. We're going to put tools in your hands. There are no more excuses. You are watchmen. You are a watchman. You're accountable for what you know in the sphere of influence that you live in. Who are the people that you need to be praying for today? Let's stop allowing apathy and inaction and silence to be the anthem of our life. And let's allow the hope of Jesus to shine through everything that we do. Amen. Hey, let me just take a moment. Some of you may be here today. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe you've been here for a while. And you may be wrestling with this idea of faith. I don't know exactly what I do believe, but I feel something happen in the inside. 
And that's because it doesn't matter what you believe. Jesus believes in you. But Pastor Kerry, there's a gap between me and God. I've tried on multiple occasions and I feel separated. I feel empty at times. I pray prayers and they seem like a vain attempt to talk to someone. I don't even know if he's there. And you know what? The Bible actually talks about that gap. Calls it a sin gap. And the Bible says that all of us in this room have sin in our life. All of us. None of us are exempt from that. And there's a consequence for sin. There's a ransom that must be paid. It is grave. It's death and an eternity in hell. You get consequences. If you have kids and they're disobedient, there are consequences. If you speed past a police officer, there are consequences. But the awesome solution is offered through the scriptures. In fact, the Bible calls it a free gift. The gift of Jesus Christ. God sent his one and only son to this earth. To live a sinless life. To die on the cross. And to pay the ransom. The punishment. And the payment for our sins. It's a free gift. To close the gap, making it possible to have a relationship with a God who loves us, and paving the way to an eternity with Him. You don't have to get perfect. You don't have to get right. You just have to say yes to Jesus today. If you're here and you have never made that decision, in a moment I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm not going to embarrass you, ask you to get out of your seats, but right where you're at, I'm going to challenge you to repeat after me that prayer in your own heart. Make that declaration. And life won't get perfect. But oh, it gets good. God closes that gap. And you experience a life that is fulfilled and whole and free. In just a few seconds, I'm going to pray that prayer right where you're at. Get ready to pray it in your own heart. And if you're here today, look him in the eyes. And you've been running from God. Today's the day to come running back. You pray this prayer and reaffirm your love for him and surrender your life. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, no one moving. If you're here and you've never prayed that prayer, or you need to run back to God and pray it for the first time in a long time, I just want you to repeat this after me in your own heart. Actually, I'm going to ask everybody just to pray this out loud. Just pray this out loud. Repeat after me, heads bowed, eyes closed. Just say, dear God, I know that you're real. I know that you love me. I know you've given me purpose. But God, I've got sin in my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay the ransom for my sins. Would you forgive me? Everyone in this room, heads bowed, eyes closed, just repeat this phrase. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. Find out more about us at theocmovement.com or we'd love to meet you in person this Sunday 